I think we ought to have Nick do the children's sermon more often. Don't uh, don't tell Joe I said that. Um, <laughs> I really like that. Um, and, and part of the reason why I liked it is because uh, it is true. We talk about the gospel every week. And um, uh, let me ask you a question about that. Does it get monotonous? Okay. Where's where's the microphone so I can walk out in the crowd and and do this? Um, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. In fact, I've been doing some reading about it, and I read something in uh, uh, a, a book by a man named G.K. Chesterton where uh, he caused me to lament adulthood. Because you know one of the best things about little kids is when you read them a book, what do they say? Read it again. Read them a book. What do they say? Read it again. Now, part of that is because they're not sure if the story might change between times you read it. That's part of it. But it's also something wonderful about that. And actually, as Chesterton says, godlike. Because he, Chesterton asks the question, does God say to the son every morning, do it again. Does God say to the moon every night, do it again? I don't know. I just think that's a, that's a, that's a pretty interesting thing because I think I'm more sophisticated than God. Right? I got this. I don't want to hear about that. I don't want the, the monotony of the gospel. And so I think that's, I think that's a pretty, uh, rich thing for us to think about today. So, we're going to talk about the gospel and the building of the temple. Um, we've been looking over the last several weeks at uh, this ragtag bunch of folks that have gone back to Jerusalem that God is tasked with the purpose of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding his house there, rebuilding the temple. And in today's text, we're going to see, remember last week, the, some guys wrote some letters back to headquarters, back to the capital, and to say, hey, do you know these Jews are building this temple? We probably should stop that. You need to go back and see if what they're doing is really the right thing or not. And what we see today is the answer from the capital about that, and then the ultimate completion of uh, the temple. And there's a lot in here that's very practical and directly uh, uh, encouraging to us uh, today. And so we're going to look at that in just a minute. So in light of that, uh, let me pray. Lord, we come to you today thanking you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that uh, you don't grow tired of the monotony of our confession. You don't grow tired of the monotony of our repentance. And you don't grow tired of hearing uh, us come to you and turn to you and return to you. Uh, we're grateful for that today. Encourage our hearts with that. Uh, forgive us for uh, taking your grace and your mercy for granted. And we pray today that you would uh, you'd bless us uh, as we look uh, at uh, what you did uh, with that group of people uh, back many years ago to see your temple rebuilt. And so bless us today. Help us today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Ezra 6, verses 1 through 5, the text is in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. And this is, this is the answer uh, to the letter that was sent to Darius uh, the king. 
Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And, and, and in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a de- re- decree regarding what you shall do to these elder, do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. And you thought the IRS could do harm to you, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't even know what a dunghill, a house that's turned into a dunghill is. I just envision dump trucks. But anyway, um, may the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then according to the word sent by Darius, the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished. On the third day of the month of Adar and the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So uh, it's taken us six chapters and 15 verses to get to the point of what God sent the people back uh, to Jerusalem to do. Right. And so uh, you can read in this chapter, you know, about the final completion. And we date that about March 3rd, 516 B.C. So, you know, about this time of year um, in 516 uh BC. Now, you may be thinking, and you may have been thinking all along about this, that, wow, there's a lot of stuff talking about this temple. I don't really care about temples because buildings in the kingdom of God are unimportant. After all, we are at a former uh, catalog showroom of the uh, uh, best products uh, uh, stores, right? And so as you think about that, you think, well, you know, why, why all this attention to buildings? We know that the church is not a building, accurate enough. 
We know that uh, buildings don't matter, right? And especially now in the New Testament, you know, the the church that is 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 a people. It's not it's not a place. It's it's not a building, and all of that stuff is true, no doubt. I remember years ago, back when we were still worshiping in uh, uh, at, at, at uh, what was then Bird Middle School. Uh, we were at a conference in New York, and we went and had some time off, and we went into uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Uh, amazing building. Scary. It's big, dark, smells like incense, lots of candles. There's dark places over there, and you're like, what's going on over there in that corner? I don't know if I like that. I'm not a big fan of statues myself, uh, particularly in... Uh, in places like that. And we were with a guy and he was like, wow, this is awesome. I I could really worship in a place like this, which I was thinking, you know, well, we worship in the cathedral of the gymnasium of Bird Middle School and, and, uh, and it smells in there. (laughs) Not, not quite like, not quite like incense, but yeah, we got our smells going on in there. And it made me think, you know, we're lame. How, how could our worship ever be any good? Right? So why is it so important to God that he spends all this time and energy bringing these people back to build a building that ultimately will be defunct and fulfilled and no longer necessary. Why? Why? Well, I think there's a couple of things that's important for us to, 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 to get a handle on today, to learn about the nature of the God that we're talking about here, right? So, so the, uh, the fact of the matter is, we, we need to begin to ask the question, did, did God live in that temple? And so, until the temple gets built, he doesn't have it really have a place to live. Well, the, the fact is, the truth of the matter is, uh, when they built the big temple, the Solomon's temple, several centuries before this, Solomon even said, you know, Lord, you, you filled the whole earth. What this little building and particularly that little room that was the holy place, the holiest of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where, where God's presence kind of resided right over that. You know, do you think that God could be contained in that? No. But did God live in the temple? Yes. Yes, sir. He sure did. Uh, and it was important for the people to, to see that there in the middle of their city. It was important for them to see the sacrifices going up 24 hours a day. It was important for them to understand that because what God was trying to communicate to them was that he was with them. And not only that he was with them, but that he would always be with them and that the destiny of the people of God is to be with God and him to be with his people forever and ever and ever. So really what the temple was, was something that was essential for the people of God to get where they were going. It's a signpost, right? You know, even even today in the, the day and age of GPS and uh, all of those sorts of things, you still need posts, signs on roads to tell you this is this this is the road that you need to get to to turn. Right. 
And it frustrates me no end when I drive around uh, cities where they let trees grow over the signs or or the signs are turned crooked or or that sort of thing. Because a signpost is essential for you when you are traveling somewhere to tell you where you are going. Well, that's what the temple was. The temple was a very important signpost for the people of God because it pointed them uh, to the nature of God, but ultimately to the destiny of the people of God. So, yes, God lived in the temple. And we read in the New Testament, Jesus himself is the temple. He is the place, the presence of God in the flesh, in space and in time with us. So we see Jesus fulfilling, coming uh, that that, that that signpost pointed to. Secondly, we read in the New Testament that the, the church itself is the temple. It's the place where God resides by his spirit in and amongst his people. And lastly, we know that individual believers are the temple where uh, by the, the, the spirit of God resides in us, that Jesus is in us, the hope of glory, right? And so as you, as you think about that, that, that's something that's, that's important for us to, to lay hold of today, that wherever we are, in whatever situation, it was so important for God to spend this time and energy to create this building so that the people would understand that he was with them. Let me say that again. It is so important for the people of God that, to understand that one of the primary characteristics of the God we worship is that he is present with us all the time. Now, the, the, the problem with that is it becomes very difficult for us often to believe that. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I... Um, I am always amazed at in worship is we just say these things and they just roll right off our tongues. And it's stunning to me that no one ever thinks, wait, wait, can I say that in good conscience? We said the Apostles Creed, something probably some of you think that's monotonous. I've been saying that thing all my life. And then we read, right, I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. I remember the first time I read the um, Heidelberg Catechism and I read that, I thought, you know, there's one word in that sentence, that long sentence, that I believe most of the time, and it's the word sad. (laughs) Right? Because often the way we function is that we do doubt that he will provide whatever we need for body and soul, and we are overwhelmed with fear and overwhelmed with anxiety and overwhelmed that the adversity he brings will not bring any good, but only more adversity. If we understand and take to heart what the temple is teaching, it is there is no place we can go 
No situation we can find ourselves in as his people where he is absent. He is always with us. He is always for us, uh, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the adversity, regardless of the difficulty we find ourselves in. Because not only is he God, but he's good to love, to be present, to be with us, right? So that's why it was so important to get this temple rebuilt because it was the one thing that God could use to say, hey, I am with you and I will always be with you. And this is a, a teaching tool so that you will understand and know what the destiny of the people of God ultimately is. But there's another thing that jumps out in this text that is that is so uh, profound and so unexpected. And that is how did God get the temple built? What, how, where did the resources come from? Well, what, what we note here in the text is, now therefore, right? Uh, he, he says, uh, uh, as he says that all of these things are to be brought back and to put there, that they are to take from the, the royal treasury money and take tax dollars from other countries and other places to be poured in there so that this thing can get built. Now, what's crazy about this is, is that God is actually taking his enemies, the enemies of his people, people who, as we, we've noted, have tried to intimidate, tried to stop, tried to be against. And even even the uh, uh, the Persians themselves, you know, they're they're oppressing these people. Right. But what they say here is we're going to take money. Take, we're going to tax other people. We're going to take the resources from your enemies and we're going to take those resources and pour them into Jerusalem so that the temple gets built. Now, just imagine these people we've seen over the last several weeks. They start, they get afraid, they get intimidated, they quit. They begin the work, they get afraid, they get intimidated, they quit. These, these, these guys, these, these governors and these other people intimidate them and, and make them afraid and so they quit. And now God in his providence is saying, you know what, what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you how good I am. I'm going to show you what my presence does. I'm going to take these enemies and I'm going to take from them their resources so that the purpose that I have for you can be fulfilled. There's a, there's a great text uh, in, the, in the Bible, next, next slide, uh, that God is able to do abundantly more than all we think or ask. We tend not to talk about that passage very much because in our culture there's a, a rampant heresy that what that means is, is that uh, God, what God wants for me is to be... Uh, uh, well, to have my best life now and to be rich and famous and successful and never experience any difficulty or challenge in my life. When actually what we see here is, is that, that God is able to do abundantly more than all we think or, or ask, especially to accomplish his purpose in and for and through us. So that God even takes the enemies of the people of God and he even takes their enmity and their work against God and against his people. And he, he flips that. We've already read in the New Testament reading today that God took the most unjust, 
the most, uh, the, the, one of the worst things that ever happened, the judicial murder of the only innocent man who ever lived. And he took that and he used that for the redemption of his people. That's what the cross of Christ is. So here in this case, he takes these guys who are threatening, who are scary, who have the power of the state to array it against the people of God, and he takes them and he takes their resources and actually uses them to see to it that the temple gets built. Now, we read this and we kind of think it's funny, right? There's this guy named Tatnai and uh, there's this guy... uh uh, Shether Bozani, and we kind of laugh at that, and we think, wow, look at, look, you know, what, what silly names. They don't seem to be very threatening. Well, if you were a, a, a Jewish person living there in Jerusalem, they would have scared the daylights out of you. Let's think, are there any political figures, names I could mention right now, who scare the daylights out of you? Or, or, you know, well, they don't scare me. They just make me mad, which means you're afraid. <laughs> Anytime a man's angry, he's usually afraid, right? Do you really think a governor or a lieutenant governor or a senator or a city councilman is more powerful than Jesus? God is everywhere except the capital. <laughs> right? Uh, the work of God is is going on everywhere except in Virginia. Uh, somebody talked to me uh, about uh, moving out of Virginia because it just doesn't seem to be a good place to live anymore. God is able to take uh, difficult and adverse situations and turn them to his glory and to our good. And so so the fact of the matter is, uh, who is the sovereign, who, who is the God of heaven and earth? Uh, it's not somebody living in a white building somewhere uh, in a capital city. It never has been and it never will be. And so as we, as we understand this, that, that we should, we should see that God can take even the enmity of the world and the, and, and the enmity of the rulers of this world and turn them for his purposes, right? Because as we read this, we, one of the things that Ezra does is very subtly is he communicates to us who it is that's actually doing the work, right? Uh, he says, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, right? So who's really doing the work and who's really doing the decree? Now, the, the, the fact of the matter is what we see here is, yes, there's a decree from Cyrus to get this thing built. But Cyrus is simply mimicking, really, the decree that God made. He's not even aware that God decreed it. He's not even aware that the God of heaven and earth, who he's you know kind of hedging his bets here with, uh, is really the one who's in charge, who's really the one who gets the temple built. 
listen, the, 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 this is something that is, is profound for us. You know, we, we, we tend to think, um, we, we tend to believe in a God uh, who saves us from our sins. We, we tend to believe in a God who, who makes atonement for our sins. But most of the time we act like, as we walk through this world, that God has this disinterest and is not engaged or involved in any way in what's happening in our lives. That he's maybe created the world and he spun it out and he just lets it run and he's never engaging or involved in it. Well, what we see here is, is what looks to us and what have look, would have looked to Cyrus as his decree actually, actually is the decree of God. Jesus is alive and at work, uh, uh, seeing to it that his purpose uh, is accomplished. And all of this, all of this, Things that happen in capitals hundreds of miles away, all of this is to build this building so that the people of God would have a physical representation, a thing in their midst that said that God was with them. Why is that so important? Why is it so key for us to understand that? Well, I think for many of us and for, for a, a, a big chunk probably of, of our existence week to week and day to day, it seems like us, seems to us like God is very distant. Um, I got to do a, a, a memorial service yesterday, a, a funeral, and um, uh, it occurred to me while, while I was doing this that I really should go back and redo all the funerals I did 25, 30 years ago because they weren't very good. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the reason for that is, is because I was immature. I, I didn't really understand what was going on at a funeral. Now, you, you may think, well, that, that sounds really odd. Well, I, I think it is a, it's a, it's a pretty profound thing for us to have to, um, to, to kind of unpack this. Because I think one of the things that you realize when you, when you speak at a memorial service is not only do you have the great uh, opportunity to proclaim the resurrection from the dead, but you also have the opportunity to say to people and to ask the question, what or who could separate you from the love of God? If Jesus is with you in his love and in his grace and his mercy, what could separate you from that? Can dementia separate you from the love of God? Can cancer? Can heart disease? Can death? Can grief? Right? If he's with us, then what that means is it's not just that he's kind of present, but that he's actually partnered with us. He's in relationship with us. He is for us and loving us and caring for us and providing for us in the midst of all the difficulty that we experience in life. And so this temple was so important 
Because we, like these people, tend to forget that what the gospel promises to us is not just uh, um, that now our sins are forgiven as rich and as full and as free as that is, but our sins are atoned for and our God is present in and with us at all times, at all places. That's great news for us uh, this morning, especially as we come to the table. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, when I drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assigned you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Right, let's use this confession. It's printed in the bulletin uh, to confess our sins uh, this morning together. Oh, Lord, we desperately need you and the forgiveness you offer. You have called us to be your people and to live for your glory. But we have sinned against you. We have not believed we are your holy people. We have not trusted you as beloved children marked by your glory and purposes. We have lived impatiently as if only we mattered and all of our passions are out of order. Mercifully forgive us all our sins for Jesus' sake and renew us in your redeeming love. Amen.
believer, hear these words of encouragement. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so uh, now I take this bread just as Jesus took it on the night in which he was betrayed. And I break it, ministering in his name, and I give it to you in his name. One of the things that is profound uh, about what is happening here as we come to the table is we are celebrating the forgiveness of sins, yes. We are celebrating the the fact that uh, we have full atonement for our sins, but we're also recognizing by eating this bread and drinking this cup that Jesus Christ is here, that he's alive and that he is spiritually present to his people. Um, and that this this is the place uh, in and among and with his people uh, that the Lord loves to live. And so when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, that's part of what we remind ourselves of is not just that Jesus lived, not just that Jesus died, not that just just that Jesus rose again, but he's with us even now. He's he's with me now in my suffering. He's with me now in my grief. He's with me now in my joy. He's with me in my failure. He's with me in my uh, successes. He's with me in my triumphs, and he's with me in my fears. And so this bread and this cup are tangible things that we hold and taste and see to know uh, that that uh, is true for us and true of our Savior today. So if that's your hope, you profess that to a body of believers somewhere, he invites you again uh, this morning uh, to take up in your hand and into your body uh, these elements to remind you, to help you come to grips with the fact that Jesus is with you. Uh, as the uh, elders and deacons come down front to assist me, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, and all the bread is bread that is gluten-free.